0: Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast podcast. Thank you for joining us for our study through the book of Jude. We live in a world that is against the ways of Jesus. It seems that everywhere we look, the truth of God's word is under attack, even within the church. We as believers are called not to cower in the face of these attacks, but to boldly proclaim what is true and defend what is right. And this is what the book of Jude is all about. Grab your Bibles and let's jump in. Well, if you
1: have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them to the book of Jude. Revelation, turn left, one book, there is Jude. And stand with me as we continue our study. Little bait and switch there. Did you like that? You're like, whoa, what's going on? You guys are like, oh, Pastor Doug's here, praise the Lord, you're wet. And now you're like, whoa, what happened? I had my eyes closed. Jude, (laughs) only one chapter in Jude, so Jude starting in verse 8, read with me. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for the pay and for pay they have rushed headlong into the era of Balaam, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. You may be seated. I'm very ex- I love the second service, okay? I love it, you know why I love it? Is I don't pay attention to the clock, okay? First service, I'm like, oh man, like we got another crowd coming in, and it's like, ah, stress, I gotta talk faster. You guys, this is, you're like, Ryan talks slower in the second service? What does he sound like in the first? You can watch it online, but uh, I'm excited for to be here right now with you. We are continuing our study in the book of Jude. As a way of reminder, maybe if this is your first time joining us in this um, series or the study in this book, I wanna just set some context real quick. Um, Jude, the author of this epistle, is the half-brother of Jesus, and he's writing to the true church, those who would be true followers of Jesus. And there's a reason why he's writing. It's a good reason to write a letter. You have a reason, right? There's a a purpose behind my writing. It's not just a casual letter, but there's a a reason for it. And he was just so burdened for this church that they would contend earnestly for the faith. And we, we we were told in that first week, and I loved it, that that word contend means to agonize to agonize uh, for the faith, not to be passive, but rather to actively defend what is true. And so we have this faith, this beautiful gospel that has been handed down to us, and Jude is saying, hey, many people are gonna try to distort it. They're gonna try to change it. They're gonna try to add to it. They're gonna corrupt it. And you, this, just the exhortation of Jude, the admonishment of Jude is defend it. Stand up for it, agonize over it, maybe even put your life on the line for it. Why? Because as we learned in verse 4, Jude tells us that certain persons, certain people have crept into the church, and they've crept in unnoticed. And he says that these people, they're ungodly. And these apostates, they're distorting and perverting the grace of God. They're using it as a license to sin. Instead of grace, we, we sang about it earlier, instead of grace freeing us from sin, they're, they're communicating it and they're using it as a way to keep people in sin. You have this license, you have this freedom to continue to indulge. And Jude says, Church, you've got to be on the lookout for these men. Why? Because they're hard to spot, they're crafty, they're clever. And they're going to actively seek to pull you away from the wonderful faith, from the message of the gospel that you've received so freely. And that's why Jude says contend, agonize for the faith, because there is a spiritual battle that we're in, and we have to be alert. Amen? I was talking to a gentleman after the first service, and he was like, there is no accident, he was telling me this, there's no accident or just coincidence that the Lord led Pastor Doug to this book. And I would agree. He says, this is so what we need for our culture, the state of our culture, the state of the church right now. This is the message that we need to, to, to hear time and time again, to stand firm in the truth of God's Word, to defend the gospel. There is one thing worth dying for, and it is the truth of God's Word. Amen? And Jude asked this question, we looked at last, the last two weeks, at what peril do people turn away from the truth of the gospel? By rejecting that timeless truth, where does the end lead to? And Jude gave us three powerful examples from the Old Testament that all exemplify the consequences, the peril of rejecting the truth of God's Word in unbelief and disobedience. And so we saw um, the situation and the story of Israel in the wilderness. And we saw the fallen angels in Sodom and Gomorrah. But the, the just in brief, just to recap, we saw that the Israelites, they were slaves in Egypt. They were in captivity and bondage. They f- cried out for God to deliver them. Lord, help. Lord, save. The Lord answers their cries. He raises up Moses to be their deliverer. And Pastor Doug brought out the beautiful truth is that God didn't just save the Israelites from bondage, though that is amazing, but he saved them from bondage for blessing. He had blessings and promises in store for his people. That's the promised land. But in between bondage and blessing, you had this little thing called the wilderness. (laughs) And the wilderness was on purpose to teach them great lessons of faith, trust, obedience. Will we trust, will they trust the Lord with everything for the food that they were gonna eat, to the clothes that they were gonna wear, A lot of lessons on faith, and so they finally come to the border of Canaan. There, the Promised Land is awaiting them. And so they sent they sent twelve spies out. You know the story. I'm just recapping it, Um, just for in case you didn't you don't know this. They sent twelve spies to go check out the land. Okay, this is the land God promised. Is it ready for us? You know, and ten of them come back. They're like, no, no, it is not ready. There are there's big giants in the land, and and uh, the walls are too fortified. Like this this can't happen. This is not for us. Two spies, Joshua and Caleb back and like, no, this is what God has. And what happens is the children of Israel, they listen to the 10 spies with the negative report, and they didn't go in, they didn't follow in obedience and take the promised land. And to what peril, as a consequence to that unbelief, that lack of faith in the Lord? Is this what the Lord had for you, Really? They didn't trust him. And in the consequence, again, of this, of their disobedience, a whole generation died in the wilderness. They didn't get to experience the promise and the blessings that God had for them. And the reason Jude brought up the Israelites is because this is the same thing that the apostates had done in his day. They were, in essence, the voice of 10 spies, the voice of unbelief, encouraging the people not to listen to the Lord. Don't step out in faith, don't walk in faith, walk by sight instead. They encouraged them to doubt the Lord. Hey, abandon your trust in God. God doesn't care for you. Look back, go back into bondage, go back to Egypt, it's safer there. And then last week, we looked at the fallen angels to further his point. Jude, he brings up the consequences of unbelief, and he brings in the context, again, of these fallen angels. They were created by God in purity and holiness to serve God and worship. But Revelation chapter 12, we looked at last week, tells us that when Satan fell, he led a rebellion in heaven, and one-third of the angels followed Satan. And these fallen angels are now demonic beings who are now serving as Satan's servants, Their demonic forces, their whole agenda is to combat and distort the truth of God's Word. But what we know is that Satan and these fallen angels are destined for ultimate judgment in eternal hell along with their followers. And Jude here uses fallen angels to paint the picture of the peril of unbelief and rebellion and the judgment that is to come for them. And Jude is saying, listen up. If God didn't spare the fallen angels and their rebellion, neither will he spare these false teachers. God will judge them. And then we looked at the very, very encouraging, beautiful story of Sodom and Gomorrah last week. I'm joking. It wasn't that way. You're like, really? I don't remember it that way, right? (laughs) But if you remember the apostates in Jude's day, they were trying to uh, normalize immorality in the church perversion within the church. That's how far away the message of the gospel, the liberating gospel, got away from them. And he brings up again the Old Testament story of Sodom and Gomorrah, a tragic story. Angels, we know angels, they came into the city, they met with Lot there, and Lot invited them into his home just to be hospitable for them, make them a meal, give them a, a place to crash for the night. But because sexual perversion was so out of control in Sodom, the homosexual men in that city, they came to Lot's house, they were banging on the door, demanding that he let them in so that they could have sex with these angels. That's how far the perversion got there in Sodom, the wickedness. Jude calls it in verse 7, gross immorality. But we know the end of the story there in Genesis, that God ultimately judged them with his righteous judgment. And Jude's point is this, just as Sodom and Gomorrah were once wonderfully blessed, they eventually suffered the, the judgment of God's wrath. And so, too, it will be with these certain men that he's writing about, these apostates who have crept into the church. They're now leading people astray. Judgment is coming for them as well. And so that brings us to our study this morning in verse 8. Jude has just warned the judgment that is to come for these apostates. And I was thinking about this. If this was, you know, as, as serious of an issue for Jude, that he's making it out to be in this epistle, because it's kind of a doom and gloom epistle. It's not super, super encouraging. But if this was a serious matter, which we know it is, and if it's a, 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 a similar matter, a, a great matter in our culture, in our day, then you and I must be on the alert as to who these men are and what to look out. You know, how do we discern? Is there apostates in our midst? How do I know a false teaching or a false teacher from a, a good teacher? Who are they? What are the signs to look for? Look at verse 8. Yet... In the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. Jude starts off by calling these men dreamers. They're dreamers. They dream. Almost every commentator will tell you that it probably refers to the fact that these false teachers use their own dream life as being of divine authority. That this was the way in which God was going to speak. That they had a dream, therefore they had a direct line to God that nobody else had. And that can get scary really quick. Now, before we move on, I want to say, address this. Many people have asked, it's like, you know, Ryan, I've had a reoccurring dream. I've had a dream time and time again. Do you think that this is the Lord speaking to me, you know, in my dreams? And I'd say, perhaps. Perhaps the Lord can speak to you in any way that he wants to. I think of Acts chapter 2, verse 17, and it shall be in the last days. God says that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So, so I would say, yes, God absolutely can speak to us in our dreams. He can do whatever he wants, uh, but listen to this. If you are going to live your life based upon your dream life, you're going to be messed up. <laughs> How many of you remember your dreams? I'm grateful. I don't remember many of my dreams, but the ones that I do remember, I'm glad that I don't base my life around them or about, upon them. They are more like nightmares. I wake up in a cold sweat, and I'm like, oh, thank, Lord, thank you that, I'm, that that's not true, Because if I live my life governed by my dreams, I would live it completely differently. I would be living in fear and anxiety and worry. Someone once said, dreaming permits each and every one of us to be quietly and safely insane every night of our lives. (laughs) I like that. But the question we must ask ourselves is where do these teachers, these false teachers, these apostates, where do they get their authority from? Jude says, these men, they might come along and say, well, God spoke to me in a dream, and that's my authority, and therefore it supersedes all of their authority, the authority of the elders in the church, the authority of the pastors, the authority even of Scripture. Listen, God can indeed speak to you. He can speak to me in our dreams. I firmly and fully believe that. We see that in Scripture, but let me say this. If our dreams ever contradict the unchanging, infallible Word of God, it is not God giving you that dream. We saw that. You see that from the 1800s with Joseph Smith. He led a whole rebellion, a whole cult, a whole religion based upon a new revelation, a new dream that he had that no one else had. It's called the Mormon faith all because he was a dreamer. And so these dreamers, Jude says in verse 8, they defile the flesh because their authority, again, is rooted in their dream life. Sin and rebellion against the Lord is all relative. What are they feeling today? Well, that's the new truth. However they want to interpret Scripture, they can. Why? Because they are men of dreams. God is speaking a new word to me. Let me tell you about And to them, God's word is not the highest authority that governed their lives. And so they they are the highest authority themselves. And that's a scary place. Whatever they feel in the moment, that dictates the rules. That dictates truth. And listen, there are so many people today buying into the lie of thinking that the Bible is archaic and out of date. Do you know that? They think that this, this scripture, yeah, it was nice, but it was written for a different time. It was written for a different culture. Do you know how many times I've heard that, especially in the last couple of years, especially from the younger generation? Oh, man, the Bible is out of date, out of touch with the times. And they, and they mask it, and they call it deconstructionism, by the way, if you've ever heard that term. But deconstruction is—they is they deconstruct. They pull apart Scripture. They pull apart the parts of Scripture that they don't like, that they don't—they're they don't, not comfortable with, that flies in the face of culture, and say so they throw out things like homosexuality. Oh, God, I just want to focus that God is loving. God loves. God accepts all. He's gracious. So we're going to just set that aside. They, they adultery is masked under the under the guise of God wants me to be happy. Right? He cares about our happiness. And so if that, if that other person makes you happy, God says, go all for it. And over and over again, they, they pick and choose. And what's the authority today? What, what, what do people find as the, the highest authority? What's leading the charge of change and in the interpretation of Scripture in our culture? Listen, it's self. It's pride. It's the flesh. And that's why Pastor Doug has said every week in our study in Jude, never judge the Holy Scripture against the standards of the culture you are living in. Always judge the culture you are living in against the standards of God's eternal Holy Word. That was good. Good word. (laughs) Listen, once you go down the road of picking and choosing... What you don't want to hear by, what you like, what you don't like, there is no recovering from that. Either this book, the book that you have, maybe on your smartphone or in your lap, either that is the inerrant, inspired, infallible word of God or it's not, and you and I have to settle that right away. I like 2 Timothy 3. It doesn't matter what I like. 2 Timothy 3 says this. This is Paul. All Scripture is inspired by God, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. It's the Word of God. So these dreamers, they defile the flesh, and Jude says they reject authority. You see the pattern? So not only they they don't… It's not that there's not an authority figure in their life or in place… It's, it's not that they don't have the Old Testament writings in Jude's day, because they did, but it's that they reject it. I've been going through uh, the Daily Grace's uh, one-year Bible, and I just finished uh, a couple days ago the book of Judges. And Judges was a um, it's kind of a. It's a really sad book. You just kind of you see Moses and leading the people well, and then passes the baton off to Joshua, and, and Joshua's a great solid leader, and then Joshua passes away and dies, and then they fail to you know pass on the the message of God to the next generation, and, and then it just gets tragic really quick. But over and over again in Judges, especially towards the end, you find this phrase in Judges 21. It says that every man did what was right in his own eyes. And that always strikes me every time I read it. I'm like, man, is this a prophetic word in our culture today? (laughs) Like every man does what is right in his own eyes. You know, we are seeing a huge attack on the biblical stance to almost everything right now in our culture especially right now. There's an all-out affront to biblical gender and sexuality, and that's why I am not excited, but I am glad for Pastor Nathan and Holly to to tackle that issue, to expose the lies of this world, but also to share what does the Bible truly have to say about that. So that's my plug for tonight at 6 o'clock. We have to educate ourselves because, listen, you're going to be facing it if you haven't faced it already. Questions deconstructing, does the Bible really say, does God really hate homosexuality? I don't know. You're going to cover it tonight, Nathan. So there's a huge attack going on against God and his holy word, but I felt compelled to ask you, how are you personally doing with submitting to the authority of God's word in your own life? And I'm asking myself the same question. You see, it's easy for me to look out in the world and look at other churches and other pastors and they're not living up to God's standards and it's easy for me to to evaluate them. But how am I doing? How are you doing? I once had a guy, you know, say that he didn't think that pornography was a sin. I think God's Word has something different to say about that. He didn't want to live under the authority of God's Word. How are you doing at, you know, we just, last month, we did a series on on loving, being loved by God, but also loving one another. How are you doing at loving and forgiving and being gracious with those in your life? These are commands of Scripture that He has called us to. How are you doing? Do you think that because your sin isn't as bad as their sin, you're not an apostate? That you don't have to repent and turn from it? Again, it's easy to talk about everyone else rejecting biblical authority, but we must ask the question to ourselves as well. So not only do these men rely on their dreams for their authority, they defile the flesh, they reject all authority, and then he says at the end of verse 8, and they, they revile angelic majesties. Again, you can see the pattern in their lives, their pattern, in their leadership, if you will, that they're, these people that are out there, they themselves are their own authority. They have no respect for those that God has put above them. And this pride that is in their hearts is causing them to lash out with their words. And I believe Jude, Jude is characterizing it as arrogance. They're arrogant in their speech and now they're speaking out against, against angelic majesties. The ESV says glorious ones. The New King James uh, version says dignitaries. And we don't know exactly 100% what they were or who they were. Commentators differ on this. Someone says that these people are speaking out against the authority of like church leadership and the elders and pastors, others think it's maybe governmental authority. But others, they think that they're arrogantly mouthing off against spiritual beings, whether that be angels or demons, or it could be all the above, but I would go with the latter there. But I'll tell you this, arrogant preachers love to stir the pot. And I don't know if you've seen it, but it's, a, it, it is a, it's something to look for. They love to stir the pot. They're always looking for opportunities not to feed the sheep, but I would say to shock the sheep. To shock the street. There's a whole podcast Pastor Doug turned me on to last fall about highlighting a pastor and his whole ministry, maybe it wasn't based on it, but it definitely has the, the ramifications of and the, and the reputation of being a pastor who's not there just to care for them and love them in grace and truth, but to shock them. He was, always, he was always bordering the line of, can I shock them today? Can I rub them wrong a little bit and get away with it? He had no authority in his life. So this happens. And these preachers, they come across as angry toward everything and everyone. But here's the point that Jude's making. Look at verse 9. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. So Jude is using Michael, the archangel, to communicate his point that even angels submit and respect the power and authority of those around them. They have no power and authority in and of themselves. And he says here, but Michael the archangel. Now, who is Michael specifically? He's mentioned by name four times. He could appear more, but by name he's mentioned four times throughout the Bible. In Daniel 10, Daniel 12, Revelation 12, and here in Jude. And every time Michael appears, it's always in the context of readiness to fight or ready for battle, And he's referred here as the archangel, which simply means the leading angel or the chief angel. Daniel refers to him as the first of the chief of princes, who's supposed to be the guardian of Israel. And Michael only says four words that we have recorded in Scripture, and they're here in Jude, the Lord rebuke you. And as Pastor Doug mentioned last week in our study, and it's important, and I wanted to highlight it uh, again very briefly, because I think it's important that we understand this, and that is that Satan is not the counterpart of to God, and God is not the counterpart to Satan. There is no rival to God. That's important. It was honestly when he when he uttered those words last week. It's just I know it, but it's reassuring to my soul. That's right, God. You have no rival. You have no equal. God is all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's all-present. Satan isn't that. And if Satan ever were to have a counterpoint, kind of a rival, it would be potentially Michael the archangel, the high-ranking angelic being. And so Jude tells us here in verse 9 that at some point this leading, this most powerful angel, was in dispute with the devil when he was arguing about the body of Moses. You guys know what he's talking about? No. I look at blank stares. Like what? That's how I felt too. Okay, when I, when I when I first read this. Now, this one little verse here, Jude takes us to somewhere that no one else in Scripture takes us. We're in uncharted territories, and the question that many have asked, and maybe you're asking right now, is what? <laughs> Why? How? When? What? Moses's body? Someone was arguing for it? Satan is? What? When did this happen? All we're told in Scripture about the death of Moses is from Deuteronomy 34. Let me read it for you. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no man knows his burial place to this day. So when did this happen? Like, when did this, what is the context? The Bible doesn't say. The Bible doesn't say. We don't know where Jude received this information about um, God could have given him this special revelation. He totally could have. God can totally do that. There are some ancient scholars that talk about an apocryphal book known as the Assumption of Moses or the Testament of Moses. And we only have fragments of it to this day, and it's from an interpretation of that. Trust me, I looked into it this week. I'm like, i got to read this thing. You can't read it in its context. It's not there. But that's the, that's the kind of the idea that maybe Jude was pulling from. And so, again, we, we, we don't know when this took place. The question is here, why did this take place? Like, why does Satan want the body of Moses? Like, that's a great question. One commentator says this, the devil wanted to use Moses' body as an object of worship to lead Israel astray into idolatry. And I think that's very probable. It's not a bad suggestion. It's actually pr- pretty logical. Israel was always quick to wander away from the Lord into idolatry, and perhaps Satan knew that propping you know, Moses up after he had died, um, he could really use that for his own purposes, to lead Israel astray. But we know that Satan wasn't successful in getting, this, um, the, getting the body of Moses. We know that Moses appears in the Mount of Transfiguration. We know that Moses is one of the, the two witnesses in Revelation 11. But listen to this. The why isn't important. The how, the when isn't important about this argument. That's not Jude's, Jude's point. Jude's point is, again, how I should say, sorry, how Michael was arguing, how he was disputing with Satan. And Jude says, even the top leading angel, the most powerful of angels, Michael did not, verse 9, did not dare pronounce against the devil a railing judgment. In other words, Michael at least respected the authority structure And even though Satan was a fallen angel, but Michael seemed to have respected that and said, the Lord rebuke you. Michael knew who he was battling, and if he was going to win this battle, it was not going to be in his name or in his power or in his ability. But victory was only going to be found in the powerful, almighty name of the Lord. Listen, this was a spiritual battle, and, and, and for you and I, if you, we're, we find ourselves in spiritual battles, how many of you? You guys in a spiritual battle? You've been in one, probably headed into the next one? Man, if we're going to um, fight in spiritual battles first, we need to recognize it for what it is. How many of us think everything in life is just a fleshly battle, <laughs> So we fight flesh with flesh, but we first have to recognize a spiritual battle for what it is. It's spiritual. And secondly, we cannot fight a spiritual battle with flesh, and if we do that, we won't win. And Michael revered and respected the position, the authority, the power of even Satan not to use his own authority to come against him notice that Michael didn't start mocking or accusing the devil. David Gudzik said this, God hasn't called us to judge the devil, to condemn the devil, to mock him or accuse him, but to battle against him in the name of the Lord. So we don't go in our own authority. We don't just say, devil, I rebuke you. We don't, we don't, we don't say, I bind you, Satan. I come against you, oh evil one. We shouldn't even be talking to the devil, Okay. That's nowhere to be found in Scripture that Jesus didn't teach us in the Lord's Prayer to, to go to the devil and this is how we interact with him. No, you go to the Father. You go to the one who's all powerful, who's sovereign, who has all authority. Listen, did you know that the devil is not threatened by you? He's not scared of you. He didn't freak out the moment that I walked in the room. Oh, no, Ryan's here. He doesn't care. We are no rival to him. We don't intimidate him. But listen, he is scared of the God that's inside of you and I. I think of 1 John 4:4. greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. Listen, greater is he that is in you. Not greater are you now. Greater is he that's in you. The power is only found in the person of the Lord and the spiritual battles that you and I find ourselves in, they all belong to the Lord. And we need His power so badly. I think of the story of David and Goliath. You know, Israel is just, they're, sh- they're shaking in their boots. They're, they're, they're coming across the giants. David comes along and says, yeah, I, I'll battle. You can't find anyone to fight Goliath. I'll fight. And what was the natural instinct of King Saul? Well, here's my armor. Go put it on. But David recognized, no, 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 this, this battle is Not fleshly. This is spiritual. This is a deeper, there's something deeper going on here. He knew he couldn't battle Goliath. He couldn't battle the spiritual thing in Saul's armor. He needed something greater. And that's what I love when he says in 1 Samuel 17, he says, you come. David's talking to, to Goliath. He says, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. But listen, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have taunted. This day, The Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you, and I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword nor by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into my hands." Listen, if David recognized this, you and I must recognize this. We have no authority in and of ourselves to battle Satan. Look at verse 10. We'll see the contrast between these apostates and Michael. Verse 10, but these men, they revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct like unreasoning animals and by these things they are destroyed. Jude is saying, in contrast to Michael, who would not even speak evil of the devil on his own authority. You have these men who are constantly speaking evil about things that they don't understand. So not only are they arrogant in how they speak, but they're also ignorant in what they say. Now, Peter addressed this same thing in his epistle in 2 Peter chapter 2. He says, but these… Like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. See, they don't possess wisdom. They don't possess wisdom in their arguments or their fighting. They're like unreasoning or wild animals. They live and they act on mere instinct without moral restraint. In verse 11, Jude says, woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. And for pay, they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So Jude, he gives us three more examples from the Old Testament to remind us, once again, of the character of these men who have crept into the church and have gone unnoticed. He says, they've gone the way of Cain. Now, in short, the way of Cain is the way of religion without faith. We talked about Cain last month in our beloved series in 1 John, and so I'll briefly just highlight it here. But Cain, early in Genesis, the first family, he was a farmer, vegetable farmer. His brother Abel was a shepherd. They both made sacrifices to the Lord one day. And Scripture tells us that Abel took the, the firstborn of his flock, the very best that he had to give to the Lord, to offer to the Lord out of gratitude, but Cain didn't. And what ends up happening is that God looks down at Abel, he sees his sacrifice done in faith, and And he looks upon it with favor, with acceptance, approval, but not so with Cain's offering. And we're told in Hebrews chapter 11 that the reason why God accepted Abel's offering and not Cain's is because, again, Abel's was given in faith, trusting in the Lord. That's why Hebrews tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please the Lord. And Abel gave and sacrificed in faith, and it pleased the Lord. But again, but Cain did not. Cain gave his offering out of mere religious activity. Maybe he was trying to impress God. Like, God, look what I brought you. And God rejects his offering, and Cain is not happy. And we know how the story ends. He kills his brother. But the way of Cain is the way of pride in one's own works. I'm working hard, I produce this, I do my best, I serve here, I attend, I give, I, I, I. Again, it's a religion without faith. It's the way of Cain, Warren Wiersbe said this, is the way of pride, a man establishing his own righteousness and rejecting the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Christ. So it's Christianity without Christ. And Jude's warning is this, be aware of those who would seek to come in and diminish the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ. Beware of people presenting an empty, man-made religion that is centered on self instead of Christ. That's why I love that we've made it our aim. It's, we wrote it on the walls in the lobby, Christ-centered. If we lose that, we lose everything. Secondly, he says about these guys, they pay for, or for pay, they should say, they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam. You guys know the story of Balaam, found in Numbers 22 through 25? Balaam was a wicked prophet, but he was a prophet in the Old Testament, gifted communicator. The king of Moab hired him to curse the children of Israel. Israel was about to invade Moab, and King Balak of Moab was scared. And so he hires the prophet Balaam to to issue curses upon the people of Israel. And God tried to warn Balaam. but Balaam, don't do that. Don't go there. Like, they're people of blessing. They're a blessed people. I'm warning you, don't do it. But as more money got thrown at Balaam, he ended up taking the job. And long story short, Balaam prophesied over Israel four times. But each time, instead of curses, the Lord blessed his people. And as you can imagine, that did not make King Balak of Moab happy at all. And this wicked prophet, Balaam, was money-hungry. And he had a position of status. And right before Balak is about ready just to get rid of him, cast him aside, you worthless prophet, you, Balaam comes up with kind of a last-minute scheme, a last-minute effort. And, no, no, I can't be useful here. And he figured out, okay, if we can't get God to curse Israel, maybe we can get him to judge them. And so he devises this wicked plan to have the young Moabite women, the prostitutes, go into the camp of Israel and seduce the young men, and they led the men into idolatry. That's exactly what they did. And we're told that the Lord judged his people, and over 24,000 men died because of it. What an evil and wicked scheme. So listen, here's the error of Balaam. He was a prophet for hire lured away by the riches of this world. He loved riches and wealth more than the holiness of the people, and because of it, he led the nation into idolatry. That's the era of Balaam, and we can talk more and more about that. People getting paid, the prosperity, all of that. But Peter, he also drew a parallel between the false teachers and Balaam. He said this, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. I thought that was interesting. In other words, Balaam loved making money by leading people into sin. How tragic. He loved the wages of unrighteousness. You know what Jesus said about that? He issued a strict warning in Luke 17. He said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Those are some strict words from the Lord. That's the heir of Balaam. Greedy for material gain, money, position, status, doing anything to obtain it, even leading the people into, slavery, or into bondage and sin. Now, thirdly, he says, again, I told you guys, I warned you about the time. We're here for a while. <laughs> I'm just joking. Thirdly, he likens it, he says, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now, Korah, uh, his story is found in Numbers chapter 16, but in short, Korah, one day, went to Moses and Aaron and pretty much said to them, who do you guys think you are being our leaders? Like, who appointed you? Like, why why are we not leaders? (laughs) Who made you in charge of us? That's my own emphasis. But essentially, what happens is Korah leads a rebellion in undermining God's appointed leaders in Moses and Aaron. And he stirs up the people. Again, false teachers, they're always looking to stir the people away from the Lord. Gets about 250 guys to, to back him. And they say, yeah, man, Korah's like, I'm qualified. I'm gifted. I should be the leader of Israel, right? But ultimately, he was rebelling against God, and so it is with these apostates. They were never appointed by the Lord. They were self-promoted. God never put them there. God didn't raise these false leaders up. They just hired a good PR team. That's what I liken it to be. You just hired a good guy to, you know, follow you around, capturing all your good deeds on Instagram, and, and you got a good following. That's it. God didn't put you there. And for Korah and his followers they all perished. God dealt with them. Korah got swallowed up in the earth. And Jude's point again is this, many of these apostates follow the re- the rebellion of Korah. They they might not blatantly say to your face in our day, "Oh, you don't need Jesus." And this is what I've that has grieved my heart the most. Is when there's a sin issue or when we see destruction or man's depravity on display like we'd have on highlight on the last couple years, is it's no longer Jesus is the answer. It's always Jesus in someone else, and it's always Jesus in something else. And it's like, you got, is racism an issue? It's no longer Jesus. It's like, oh, you need to do this, this, this. Sexism? Oh, it's an issue. Oh, it's no longer Jesus. Jesus isn't going to cure the heart. We need to do other things. It's like, no, listen, if the heart is still dead, it needs to be regenerated. Like, we need Jesus. We need his gospel. So anything but Jesus is what you need is what they say. Church, listen, don't listen to them. Let me tell you this morning, you need Jesus and only Jesus. Now, I want to give you a side note. I didn't share this in the first service, and I thought it was really interesting. William Barclay, he was a New Testament scholar, passed away a few years ago. He had said that there was a sect of Gnostics in the early church when Jude was writing. There was a sect of Gnostics um, called the Orphites who regarded Cain, Balaam, and Korah as great heroes. I thought that was really interesting. Like the three bad actors of the Old Testament, these guys come up and say, you know what? These, these guys are actually amazing. Like, you know, like we should respect them. Like they're, they're our heroes. But when I read that today, and I didn't, or when I read that this week, I didn't really spend much time, but it got me thinking, is in our culture today, the farther we get away from the Lord, and sin is rampant and it's everywhere, who are the heroes in our culture? It's these people that are on display and they're just far from God. We put them as a pedestal, someone to be worshipped, like they're my heroes. I remember a few years ago, um, the, the, the trans community did that with Caitlyn Jenner. You guys remember that? She's our hero. She's the new face of, of heroism. Listen, that's not a hero. Let me just tell you that. A hero is someone who lays their life down for the better of someone else. That's a hero. Jesus is the greatest of heroes. And Jude, though, he's warning us in this. He says, church, be on the alert for people like this. They're so depraved in their thinking. They're so lost. Pastor Nathan turned me on to a a story that's happening at at the the most popular um, seminary here in Portland that have completely gone against Scripture and and just Orthodox thinking. And I listened to it yesterday. It just grieved my heart. It's just, this is where we're at as a society and even into the church. And Jesus, so he says, be on the alert for this. Guard the word of God. Certain people, they're creeping in. They're creeping into churches. They're creeping into seminaries. They're preaching a different gospel. And like Cain, their religion is based on self or man's works. Like Balaam, the apostates are greedy and can be bought for the right price. Or like Korah, they disregard authority and they place themselves, they're self-promoters. Again, false teachers come and go. These three men came from different backgrounds. Cain was a farmer. Balaam was a prophet. Korah was a leader in Israel. Listen, apostasy is never confined to just one group. S. Maxwell Coder said this, there are apostates in the pulpit, in the palace, and in the poorhouse. The sad part is that sometimes they don't even start out that way. But we are called to contend earnestly for the faith, to guard and treasure the word of God that we've been given. This is precious. Do you understand that? This is a precious, precious word of God. Think of Psalm 119. Psalmist says, how can a young man keep his way pure by living according to your word? Maybe we'd be on guard. I was thinking... I was thinking this week about, in the New Testament, the, the story of Demas. And I don't want to get off sidetrack here, but it's just heavy on my heart. You guys know, have you guys heard much of Demas? Demas was uh, a fellow worker with Paul. He was seen in the New Testament. He's addressed in Philemon. He's addressed in Colossians. And he comes up. And he's there. We're told in Paul's first imprisonment in Rome, he's there in Rome, and possibly even potentially his second imprisonment in Rome. Demas is there, a fellow worker. But at some point, Demas, I don't know what happened to him. But he deserted Paul. And Paul, when he was writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy, he said, Demas has deserted me because he had loved the things of this world. That's what drew him away. So we have to always be on the alert. You see, even if someone doesn't start out, start out as a heretic, and the danger is always there. Demas, he loved the things of this world, the present world, one translation says. I just want us to be on on red alert for that, that we don't get pulled astray. We're on alert for others, but again, defend, guard, be on alert, but treasure this word that we've been given. Amen? Amen. Amen. Lord, we love you, and we're grateful for your word that you've given to us, and I pray, Lord, that you would continue to grow in us a hunger and a Thirst for your word, that we would love your word more than anything in this life. That your word would just become more precious to us, Lord. I pray you would forgive us, forgive me for the times that I have taken your word for granted. Oh, I have, I have four Bibles at my house and on my smartphone. I just take it for granted, Lord. Forgive me of those times. Lord, give us a a supernatural love for your word. Give us wisdom and discernment, even as we walk out these doors and we leave this place of those trying to uh, distort the purity of the gospel, Lord, I pray that we would stand for truth in this dark day. I just pray that you, would, Lord, would continue just to minister to our hearts as we worship you for a couple minutes, as we spend time just continued in your presence, Lord, would you just continue to speak to us. Draw us close for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. amen.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's study in the Book of Jude. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you join us for one of our services. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you'll join us next week as we continue in our study together.